Matthew 22, 23 through 46. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. And after them the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of these two commandments depends on, depend on all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You know, I think one of the things that we can, um, we can do as a church sometimes is we can sing and not really give much thought to what we're singing. So I just want to remind you of something. You, you just sang and acknowledged that the word gives riches to those who are in need. It's the word who gives food to the famished, the starving. It's the word that supplies these things. It's a great lead in to what we're going to talk about this morning. And so as we kind of prepare to jump in, it's a really cool section in Matthew. As we've been reading through, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have just been questioning Jesus, kind of question after question after question. They're just bombarding him with questions. That ends today. It's the end. Because Jesus is going to ask them a question. And in verse 46, from that day, no one is going to dare to ask him a question again. I, I love that for what it says about teaching and learning a little bit um, and how we kind of sometimes project our Southern culture back on Jesus and how we think of Jesus as being approachable or whatever those things are. Uh, Jesus is just going to lay it out there 
for these Pharisees and Sadducees who are not questioning him to learn, but trying to expose him, trying to kind of manipulate him into this kind of remark. And it's just, it's just epic. Oh, I love it. It's like should be in a movie. I was talking to my daughter. She asked me uh, a couple of days ago, she goes, Dad, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I said, we're in that back part of Matthew chapter 22, you know, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking Jesus all these questions. And her face lit up. And she goes, oh, I love that. Don't you love that? Jesus just comes out there and he's like, just drops the mic and he's like, boom, you're roasted. And I, I thought, well... That is, that's, that's my daughter. That's how we, we see that. I, I think the same thing. It's like, ah, oh, it's so cool. And I, I love it. I, I think it's fun. I mean, I, um, I, I, I just, I, truth bomb, wrestling is fake. In case you didn't know, wrestling is fake. Um, I don't understand as an adult people like Wes Tucker who watch wrestling. I don't get it. Um, but as a kid, I did in the 80s, and some of you guys will remember Hulk Hogan, right? And there was all this moment in the match where he's just like taking hit after hit after hit, and all of a sudden he flips like the two hairs back on his head, and he's like, no. And then it, and they just keep hitting him, and it doesn't matter, and then he just goes crazy on them. I love it. Even as a kid, I like that. I, you say, are you comparing Jesus to Hulk Hogan? I, I may, I don't know. Anyway, I need to stay back to the text. It's a great passage, and you get to see Jesus just quiet and quiet his critics. It's a beautiful thing. But this morning, like, I'm burdened, and I have a concern for us. And I want to own something. Of our teaching pastors, I'm probably uh, the most on the prophet side of things. Um... I have some weaknesses when it comes to some of the more encouraging kind of shepherding things. You guys that have been around, you probably can pick up on that. I want to encourage you. And my prayer is that my weaknesses don't prevent that this morning. But I'm concerned for us. And I want to try to use this text so that you can see that concern. That maybe just in these examples, you might catch a glimpse of what we're missing. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to pray that I wouldn't get in the way of that. And that in the spirit, he would give you the ears to hear. And that this example might be a convicting example to us as a church that would transform us and lead to change. So would you pray with me for just a second? Heavenly Father, teach us. Lord, do in your spirit what we cannot do in the flesh. Lord, overcome our weaknesses Overcome our distractions. And Father, give us a deeper hope in you this morning. Pray this in the name of our Son, or your Son, our Savior, Jesus.
Amen. We don't know God's word. That's my concern. That we don't really know his word. That we don't have an appetite for his revelation. That we may sing that it is a treasure that gives riches. We may say that it is freedom to the slave. But we don't have an appetite that would model that, that would live that out, that would pursue it. And the appetite that we have is further waning. And when I say we, I want to make sure you understand who I'm talking to. I'm not talking to the people out there. I'm not talking to like just the general public. I'm talking to myself, talking to you. I'm talking to our church. We have a waning appetite for God's revelation. We see it happening around us. We don't pursue it as a treasure. And we dismiss things that should be convicting to us. Do you know the early church that you read about in Acts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, God's word, daily, day after day. They had no savings accounts, no 401ks, no like way to pursue this illusion of independence day over day, and yet they found time daily to pursue the word. And yet so many of us dismiss its value in practice. And as a result, our hope is lacking. Our hope is thin. See, we lack hope because we don't know how God works. And we don't know how God works because we don't know what God has said. And we don't know what God has said because we don't know the scriptures. We've excused our pursuit We've diluted it down to the point that it doesn't nourish us. You realize we have more opportunities than any generation before us to study God's word, to dive into his revelation, to grasp a deeper understanding of who he is and who he is called us to be, the resources and the reminders that are all around us are many, and yet it is not our culture to be people of the word. Even in our personal pursuits, in our personal Bible study, we have replaced study with this cute five-minute pick-me-up, and we call that devotion. We've reduced 
the pursuit of the teaching ministry of the church, that we would gather together, leaning into one another around the word for the preaching and the teaching of God's word. You know, it's just even on a practical level, I mean, just here at Tri-Cities, do you know on a Wednesday night, like for AIM, for example, every Wednesday night there's AIM or kids, you realize over half of the parents who drop off their kids to AIM, they just leave. They drop them off, they leave, they go somewhere else. Watch. Biblically, that's not like sin. It's not absolute that you need to stay and get in another study group. Maybe you're studying something else. But if we're honest, most of us in the pattern of our life do not model a pursuit of biblical knowledge for transformation. It's not a treasure. It's not freedom. It's not riches. At best, it's a little pick-me-up. And you have to ask yourself, those patterns, is there really enough there that is going to nourish our soul to be healthy? Are we going to produce the number of disciples and the depth that we long to produce? We're going to see revival in those settings. And so what I want to try to do this morning is I want to take this passage in Matthew 22 and I want to try in an encouraging way to show you, the church, the value, the value of the scriptures and the hope that is found in them. It is immense that you might leave this place convicted and burdened and at the same time encouraged to change the patterns of your life around the scriptures. See, in Matthew, Jesus is being bombarded with all these questions. And I don't know if there's such a thing as a stupid question or not, but there are definitely broken questions. There are definitely wrong questions. You know, we'd probably be better off to assume that the question we're asking is the wrong question when we ask it, but we don't do that very often. Like, I mean, I ask a lot of questions. I'm asked a lot of questions. But it's rare that I ask if that question is the right question. See, Jesus is being bombarded with these broken questions. They're wrong in content and in motive. The questions that they're asking him, they aim to be right not learn. They come from a place of pride, not humility. They focus on self-affirmation, not repentance. That's us. We do that all the time. I do that all the time. And this series of questions begins, it goes back into this section into Matthew 21. We've been walking through this and you remember they ask him, the chief priests and the elders come up and say, by what authority do you do these things? They're trying to entrap him. 
And if you remember in that case, Jesus says, well, I tell you what, John the Baptist, you tell me where his baptism came from and I'll answer you. They were afraid. And so they said, we don't know. Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority. And that begins this whole exchange. You get three parables that follow that. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the wedding feast. And if you remember, they begin to understand in these parables, he is talking about us. He's talking about us. And in Matthew 22, verse 17, after these parables that threatened the Pharisees' way of viewing themselves, they immediately went to try to trick him again. They asked him another question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus says, give Caesar what Caesar. And after this, the Pharisees leave. They've been around through this whole exchange, and they retreat. They haven't been able to trick him yet. They haven't been able to figure out how to like stump him yet, how to make him look bad in front of all these people. They haven't disproved him yet, and they haven't proved themselves right yet. So they retreat, and they regroup together. The Sadducees who are there see this as an opportunity. And so it's like their turn. Now, remember the, Sarisi, the Sadducees are kind of the liberal elitists of the group. They're wealthy. They believe only in the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Pentateuch. They, they only thought that was God's word. They were engaged in a political conversation consistent with Rome. They saw themselves, again, as the educated, as the enlightened. And in verse 23, the same day, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there, is, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second, and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Their question should remind you of the question of the Samaritan woman. You remember that exchange? Remember the Samaritan woman? Jesus is there, and immediately, once she begins to realize, kind of, there's something special here. You think of yourself as a teacher. You've got, she immediately goes to the theological debate of her day. My people say we worship on this mountain in Samaria. Your people say we worship in Jerusalem. Here, the Sadducees are doing the exact same thing. They go straight to the dividing theological issue, the resurrection. See, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees do not. And immediately, they go to this question that is an exaggerated, kind of ridiculing shot at the Pharisees' belief in the resurrection. 
And if Jesus thought like the Pharisees, if he held to this kind of ridiculous view, then he could be dismissed, not having credibility as a teacher by the elitists, by the ones who were really enlightened, who understood things. I mean, to try to put it in a comparison, it's, it's just a question in which their culture so deemed the logic sound that to believe it would be silly. It would be much like studying science at a public university in which they're asking you, so you think the world was created in six literal days. It's a ridiculing question. It's not a question to learn anything. They're trying to put it back on Jesus, make the Pharisees look silly, and all that's kind of implied here. Keep in mind, by the way, the Sadducees, again, they only believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and life after death isn't really explicitly talked about or the subject through much of the Pentateuch. So what is there is dismissed by the Sadducees. They believed it spoke more to Israel, the nation, rather than an individual, meaning anything that looked ahead into the future really referred to the people of Israel generations down the line than it did a resurrection for me, an individual. They hold on to this idea, and it makes sense to them. And it's important that you understand that and why. See, their question was an attempt to expose the broken logic of the resurrection. It's not just about the resurrection as a whole. See, their whole logic in the question is implied. And it's simply this, that our broken, messy lives can't just continue on after death. That's absurd. For one, there are time gaps. And the marriage union becomes their logical example of this. Who is the remarried widow's husband in heaven? Who is she married to? Now, look, we have to do something when we read this. We kind of just immediately have to ignore all the cultural distractions of this setting. Because this whole thing that they're talking about that goes all the way back into the law in which the husband dies and the spouse then marries the brother, like that's just weird to all of us. Let's just acknowledge that's just weird. We're not like, and so if you think about that, you're going to be distracted by the fact that that's just odd. So one of the things, I, I, I've, I've taught family ministry stuff all around the world and you end up in a lot of different cultures. And so there are arranged marriages, there's all kinds of different things all over the place, and it's different. And it forces you to take the scripture and focus through some of those cultural things and see those main principles. I remember one time I was in Nepal, and the question was, listen, we have this caste system here, it's people are coming to know the faith, but they believe themselves to be a priestly caste in the kind of this old Hindu setting. And so when they come in, can they be pastors or are they disqualified if they come into the faith? And I thought, well, I, don't, I mean, I don't understand why that would matter. And they said, oh, we forgot to tell you, 
they marry their sister. And I said, what? I said, the oldest son is married to the oldest daughter. That's how they keep it. And like, so does marrying your sister disqualify you from being a pastor? Now, they asked that question. Here's the honest truth. I had never thought about that in my life. That didn't come up in one seminary class. I mean, I, mean, it, I, I just hadn't thought about that. Why would I think about that? Look, all kinds of things for you to get distracted by in this, but understand the, the, the logic in their question. A lady is married multiple times here. Each time her spouse dies. When she gets to heaven, who's she going to be married to? Which one of them? And implied in this question is this linear idea that our lives just continue into heaven. And so what would happen? And it's a mocking question. There's, there's not really a, a good answer within their logic. And they know that. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. One commentator said this of verse 29, Jesus says to them, you are off base on two accounts. You don't know what God said, and you don't know how God works. That's our big truth right there from verse 29. We lack hope. That's what the resurrection is. We lack hope because we don't know what God said nor how God works. Jesus says to the Sadducees, you're wrong. You're wrong. Jesus replies with a much more immediately direct response than he does to the Samaritan woman, for example. He goes right to the issue and he just says, you're wrong. You're wrong. And he immediately proclaims they are in error. They are wrong about the resurrection. Their question is wrong, watch, because their logic is wrong. Their thinking is wrong, and therefore their question is wrong. See, they lacked hope. Again, that's the resurrection. Think about how much hope is in the resurrection. They lacked hope because they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the power of God. And in these two things, we see Jesus expose their broken logic. I want to walk you through them. First, notice their ignorance of the scriptures. They don't know God's big truths. They don't know his revelation. They don't know what God has said. They lack hope because they don't know the scriptures. 
See, the Sadducees knew the Pentateuch for just a second. Set aside the fact that they, at this moment, don't claim the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus, when he responds back to them, he doesn't cite the rest of the Old Testament. He goes into the Pentateuch, into those first five books of the Bible in his response. He's not saying you reject the rest of Scripture. He's saying you don't know the Word of God. Even the five books you claim to study, you claim are the revelation of God, you don't know them. See, if you're one of those people and you celebrate your ignorance, you're wrong. Listen, you're wrong. The Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't unfaithful because they knew the scriptures. They were unfaithful because they didn't know them. They weren't legalistic because they held to the scriptures. They were legalistic because they added to the scriptures. There is no good reason for you and I not to pour ourselves into God's word and be transformed by it. Remember, it is riches to those who are in need. Remember, it's freedom to those who are enslaved. It is a light that lights up our path. It is a treasure to us. See, they followed their traditions and their experiences, and they took their logic and they put it back into Scripture, and they just messed it all up. They didn't know it. And so Jesus takes them back to Exodus chapter in the burning bush and he says in verse 31 and as for the resurrection of the dead have you not read what was said to you by God I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob he is the God not of the dead but of the living he takes them back and he says do you not know when God spoke to Moses he names these people who have long since been dead. And he is their God. He's not the God of dead people. He is the God of the living. See, they were ignorant of God's word, of the scriptures. And second, they were ignorant of God's ways. It says the power of God. It just means how God works his authority. They didn't know how he worked. They didn't know the implications of God's big truths. Their worldview was incomplete, broken, wrong. And so the Sadducees saw everything in terms of this world. There's no awareness of the kingdom of God. It was just Israel. Now listen, the next five minutes, all this build up, everything, I want you to lean in and hear. I want you to see this. I'm pleading with you. The world they saw was their world. Everything they held on to was what they have experienced, seen, touched. It was all about them and they had placed themselves at the center. And so there is no awareness of the kingdom of God. So of course, they don't understand life after death. But they were right about something. 
it is a broken logic to make heaven a linear, linear continuation of this world. See, Jesus answers and says, no, it is the power of God that creates a new kingdom. See, he's not just going to continue our broken, messy life afterwards. He is going to make us completely new. It's new. He redeems us and makes us new. See, it's, it's not that the resurrection is this strict continuation. No, the resurrection is God raising us up, making us new, and bringing us into a completely different kingdom. That world isn't like this world. So things like marriage, the marriage union, like things like sex within that marriage union, they are different because that world is different. Jesus says, no, it will be like the angels, not of this world. See, procreation belongs to this kingdom. In heaven, there's no birth, there's no growth, there's no death. See, eternity is new. It's new. It's not, not an extension. So the question they are proposing is, is broken. It's broken. They're, they're asking what happens when we bring our mess into the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, you don't. You don't. I'm going to wipe away your mess. And it's all going to be new. Now watch. Some of you hear this. You read that, and it's devastating news to you. It's devastating news to you. You think of your spouse. You think of your kids. You think of these earthly experiences that you've had in this world that shape your understanding, that shape your discernment and shape your desire. And you hear this and it's devastating news. Listen, it is devastating to you because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Because if you did, you would wisely meditate on these things. There may be no procreation in the new kingdom. There may be no marriage in heaven. But there is perfect love. You know how I know that? Because God's word teaches us that. Because God and who he is is love, perfect, holy. It's revealed to me by the scriptures. And you want to know what else? Watch, stay with me. 
He loves me in his perfect love more than I can comprehend. And so maybe, just maybe, the heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage. But my heavenly relationships might be something more. Something beyond the logic of this world. That what I might share with my wife for eternity in heaven might be something more. And I can claim that with hope. You say, why? Because I know the God that Scripture reveals. I know the love that Scripture reveals. And I can trust Him in faith to be what He has said He is. And so I don't look forward devastated. I don't look forward in despair. I don't look forward missing what was. Why? Because I can trust that there is something better, even if it's beyond my logic. And I can be resolved to claim it in faith. See, perhaps the love I'm able to share with Amy isn't less, it's more. See, that's hope. That's hope. That's hope because I know what the scriptures say. That's hope because I know his ways are beyond my ways. So in faith, anchored in his word, I hope. I hope. That's our big truth. We lack hope because we don't know what God said nor how God works. So two quick big ideas. First, Hope in Jesus is revealed in Scripture. God makes himself known. Treasure God's revealed word. It proclaims hope. Anchor into it so that you are not tossed to and fro, so that your hope is not just limited to the things of this world. Second, Hope in Jesus is resolved in faith. Find joy in what lies ahead beyond this world. Press on. Don't look back. Look forward to what lies ahead in faith. When you consider all of the anxiety, all of the depression, all of the weight we bear, could it not be it is because we do not know the scriptures? We do not know what God has said to be true, and we have not anchored our lives into it, and it has not built up in us a hope that looks past the circumstances of our day, but looks forward, trusting in who God is and who he has revealed himself to be, that there is something greater ahead that counts all things in this life and behind us not worthy to be compared with what lies ahead. He says, you're wrong. You're missing the hope of the resurrection. He says this to the Sadducees. And he says, why? Because you don't know the scriptures. 
And as a result, you don't know how God works, his authority and his power. And so your whole perspective is off. As the team comes up, I want to fast forward. The Pharisees hear this. The Sadducees leave. They're astonished. So the Pharisees come back. They got some more questions. First, they ask him about the greatest commandment. Jesus is quick to turn their attention back to the reality that there is one God. And he is worthy of all that they have. And then Jesus asked them a question. It's the question that just kind of puts an end to their just bombardment of questions. He says, who's the Christ? Whose son is he? They immediately respond back, oh, that's David's son. Everybody would have known that. And he takes them back to Psalm 110 and he says to them, well, why did David call him Lord? They pause for just a minute. If David is his father, why did David show honor to his son and call him Lord? And they had no answer. None. Watch what was just explained. Again to the Pharisees, they didn't know the scriptures. And they brought their broken logic into discerning who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. See, they could only see a kingship that was anchored into an earthly line of David. That's it. They couldn't understand something greater. They couldn't get their mind around a God-man. Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It ends by acknowledging that Jesus, as the Christ, is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek not in the line of Levi. If you want to learn more about that, go to Hebrews 7. The author of Hebrews will break that down and he'll say, we have more than an earthly priest. We have a heavenly priest from a completely different line, not the line of man, but the line of God who reigns above it all. And the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 5, there is much to say about this how Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. But you're dull of hearing. You're immature. And mature food is for those who are in the word, who have their powers of discernment trained up by constant practice. Church, there is hope in the scripture. There is life in there. If we want to have a deeper understanding of who God is that transforms us and gives us hope beyond the circumstances of our day and leads us to look forward in faith, church, let's get into the Word. Let's pour into the resources that are there. Let us study. Let us be known as a people who are committed to study God's word, who seek it as a treasure, pleading in the spirit, Lord, use your word to change me.
But do not be surprised if there is no appetite for the word in your life that you are tossed to and fro by the circumstances and the broken logic of this day. There is hope in the scriptures. God has made himself known. He has taught us how he works. And if we are to live and resolve faith in who he is, looking forward past what we do not understand, we will do so because we are strengthened by the truth of God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for revealing who you are, your goodness, your power, your authority, and your written word. Father, most of all, thank you for revealing yourself in your son who would take on our sin so that through faith in him, we might have his righteousness, that we might be redeemed. Father, you have made him known to us through your word. What a beautiful thing. It gives us hope. And so Lord, in your spirit, encourage us, convict us, to be a people of your word who seek our riches in it, who seek our food in it, who seek our freedom in it. Transform us and give us a hope beyond this world. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.